banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dude, 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 dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And the angel took the censer and filled with fire of the altar. And the seven angels prepared themselves to sound. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Legion of Dudes presents Kingdom Come, Issue 2. I am joined, abetted, and aided by the various scallywags, highwaymen, and rogues and scoundrels that comprise the Legion of Dudes. Gentlemen, please introduce yourselves to our assembled audience. How you doing? This is Ken Morgan. Hey, guys. This is Adam Umack. And that'll be it tonight. We're a little bit short on dudes, so luckily to fill the gap... We have our friend The Voice, Bill, from the Half Hour Wasted podcast. How are you doing tonight, Bill? Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I thought I was just going to be one of many. And, uh, and uh, so to find out that uh, I'm going to have to pitch in for like three of the four days. This is like when uh, the waiter calls in and all of a sudden you have to take uh, 12 tables instead of the four you're expecting to. So, That's right. Man, pressure's you're like on. The, you're the designated hitter, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. That's funny too because I really didn't have anything to say for this issue. So, uh, boy, I don't know how we're going to manage to get through this. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be able to pry something out of you about this issue. Yeah, um, chances are good. I figured we'd wing it. <laughs> Bill McGonnell is a live and breathe. It is good to talk to you, my friend. Hey, man, it's good to be here. I appreciate you uh, letting me back on. Quite, quite the show-stopping performance on uh, Kingdom Come issue one, Bill McGonnell. I must say. Hey, respect. don't expect that. I, I use all my good material. So, uh, Res- you know, respect we'll, due. We'll <laughs> Unbelievable. I certainly hope that uh, I certainly hope that I'm able to uh, uh, contribute some small uh, amount to this show. So, you know, I'm, um, I'm I'm hoping for the best, and I am loose. I'm tan dressed and ready. So, um, you know, I'm I'm ready to give you what I got. I'm going to bring a hundred percent to the table. I bring up more than 100%, but that's physically impossible. So you guys get my 100%. You're a madman, sir, and we would expect nothing less. <laughs> Appreciate more it. More than 100%, <laughs> only because I'm really bad at math. I just wanted to bring up before we get into the meat of the issue that the Legion of Dudes will be with uh, co-conspirating with the comic Geek Speak gentlemen at the Steel City Con here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Julie the Allegheny, at the Pittsburgh's Indoor Sports Arena out in Cheswick. It's a little bit out of town, but it's a nice facility. Uh, they just added Anthony Daniels, uh, C-3PO from Star Wars, one of their guests. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to be hosting a little trivia contest giveaway there at the con. So you want to come on down. It'll be April 24th, 25th, and 26th. It'll be a, a great time. If you're into wrestling, um, Mick Foley will be there. I'm trying to remember who else. The woman that played Shock T in Star Wars, and the original Boomer from the original Battlestar Galactica, Herbert Washington. So Bring the kids. Free balloons. <laughs> the now, Legion of Dudes will be in effect. Was that the Boomer from Battlestar Galactica, or did the original Battlestar go through more than one Boomer? I've been unclear on that. This is back when Boomer was a dude. Yes. 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 He was, yes. He was this a brother. Is a pre-op. Yeah. And, and, uh, and before he became Asian. At this point, oh, he was an African-American. Or, or a machine. 
<laughs> right. He was, uh, but he'll be there signing, signing autographs and meeting his millions of fan. Anyway, uh, they just added a bunch of uh, great indie artists, including uh, my buddy Ed Pisker from uh, American Splendor and WYSIWYG, uh, Pat Lewis, uh, Jinky Coronado. If you want to see the full scoop, including uh, all the guests and all the times and all the, uh, all the events going on, uh, check out SteelCityCon.com and uh, get on their mailing list, and they'll give you updates and all kinds of good stuff. But come on down and see the dudes. We're going to have our own table, and as I said, we're going to be hosting a little bit of a trivia contest, giving away some uh, cool prizes and uh, meeting the peeps. It should be a lot of fun. All right, well, guys, um, through the wonder of editing, let's go ahead and uh, dive right into this issue, uh, issue two of Kingdom Come, uh, by Mark Wade and Alex Ross, as we mentioned earlier. And our opening scene is with Norman, the pastor and the speaker, and it sets up a very convenient plot device that they're able to use through the uh, the book. The specter tells Norman that he is uh, guided by his visions, and he only sh- is shown that which mu- he must see. So, luckily for uh, for uh, this convention, you know, the writer really doesn't have to set everything in a in a you know standard timeline or chronology. He can pretty much jump around because Norman has you know the uh, he's writing American Ex- uh, Specter Express. You know, leave the driving to us. Norman's visions is that. When the Golden Age Sandman, Wesley Dodds, dies um, in issue one, this is pretty much the, the shatter point where, what, uh, where, excuse me, where Norman McKay's visions start. If you look at right. current DC continuity, um, you know, Wesley, when, when Wesley uh, dies, his, more or less, his apprentice, Sandy, the current Sandman of the, of the Jeff Johns uh, JSA, inherits these kind of uh, bizarre future visions uh, from Wesley, and that's returned in kind to Norman at this part of right. the story. He so him, he tells him it's her, his turn to dream now. I think what's the way they they, uh, they termed it, but it's it's exactly the same. You're right, Adam. It's exactly the same as uh, in the early issues of JSA. I believe it was um, JSA Secret Files number one that Wesley died, uh, died in continuity, and then uh, at the very end of that issue, it was uh, Sandy's turn to start having the prophetic dreams of evil. But in this case, it's Norman's turn. Uh, Wesley somehow passed his precognitive dreams on to Norman, and uh, the Spectre is guiding him along. And, yeah, I think um, the important thing is that, like, the Spectre's just here. I mean, like, I, I think you can look at this like a Dante-Virgil kind of relationship, kind of like the Inferno, like, the Spectre is Virgil, and, you know, Norman is kind of like Dante, and they're going through, you know, the circles of hell, purgatory, and obviously into paradise, which actually they end up at Themyscira at the end, which is paradise, interestingly. But it's, you know, the Spectre, I don't think the Spectre is steering. The Spectre is uh, looking for judgment, not for, you know, this nostalgia tripped on memory lane, which interestingly, as, as we'll see, and Jim will explain the next couple of pages, really is kind of like uh, a referendum on comics in the 90s. You guys talked last issue about how um, Magog was more or less the um, forerunner for this in the book, but... You're going to see America, uh, America Commando in just a second, which is the you know roided out Team America, World Police, go crazy, <laughs> Patriot Act on your face. Uh, right, he's got giant guns. He has giant shoulder pads. He has a ridiculously long cape and armor everywhere where he shouldn't have armor. And you're right, he's like totally roided out, giant guns. Very much a product of like '90s comics. You'd be right at home next to like Bloodshot or Death Blow. Or, and know, I'd say the same for you know I'd say the same for Magog because he's such a weird um, kind of 
uh, analog for cable in some cases from the X universe that's with with the bionic arm, the crazy scarring by the eye, the kind of like opaque kind of misty eye that right, the cybernetic armor that kind of blends into his skin. Um, I, I mentioned in the last episode, and it bears mentioning out now too, is that um, uh, Alex Ross said in an interview that I read in, in uh, the Comics Journal that he wanted to put all the design elements he hated about 90 superheroes into one hero with Magog. That's why you get the horns, the giant energy weapon, and all the stuff that you're talking about. And we see that same kind of design sensibility uh, with American Commando here as he takes over the Statue of Liberty, uh, one of the most misguided uh, anti-American speeches possible. And he's being attacked by the new version of uh, Red, White, and Blue, who seem to just be paratroopers with missile launchers, <laughs> uh, not having any other discernible uh, powers or anything to separate them or, or to make them heroes. And the, uh, the innocent people are being mowed down in the process. This is very much like the scene we saw in the last book with the cable car, where the, the, the superheroes were just fighting each other just for the sake of fighting each other with uh, no regard for innocent victims caught in the crossfire. I'm going to say it, and you're all going to hate it, but this is just like Watchmen, too, with uh, the comedian all decked out in the red, white, and blue. And what, is, what are their powers? Is it fire, water, and air? Is that what we're looking at here? This kind of elemental thing. Well, I do know that the, um, in, in the Golden Age, there was an American Commando, and there was a, uh, a, uh, a group of superheroes, red, white, and blue. Um, so I guess this is uh, Ross's uh, postmodern take on those characters. And this guy's a jerk. I don't like him at all. Um, I don't like his bionic arm. I don't like his goofy uh, bird eyebrows. <laughs> it, looks like he, it looks like he actually like puts his arm into the gun mount or something. He's not just holding it. Um, yeah, totally over the top. And the idea that every single one of his commandos has the, some combination of red, white, and blue. Um, you know, just uh, it's, it's it's fairly well sickening, I guess, just like it should be. Yeah, those pouches are awesome. <laughs> Red, white, and blue people were attacking American Commando. They were against each other. Because American Commando is being driven by brain trust? I, I guess I got confused. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Had we ever seen this brain trust um, referred to, or is this an invention for Kingdom Come? These guys are brand new, but they did make an appearance um, in Teen Titans after their original appearance in Kingdom Come. Okay. Just, so and, it was, and, and this was one of those, like, it was really inexplicable. They just kind of showed up one issue and have not been seen uh, from since. Now, it wasn't uh, the Teen Titans Go, was it? it was no, no, this was the regular title. Actually, it looked like Ron right. Howard's brother. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Star Trek. That the, the, the buttheads from the cage episode of Star Trek. I just thought, yeah, very, Enjoy very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I find it very pleasurable. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that they got uh, got cracked in the head by uh, by Robin. I, I had a hard time telling exactly what it was. I guess he was throwing a uh, a Robin orang at them or something. Is that a, uh, a red Robin orang or, or or is that just mm-hmm. a uh, cap or what is it that he's even at him? Coat hanger. Well, before we get to, uh, too far ahead of ourselves, I just I would like to remark just really quickly on page seven. That uh, it, it, this is one of my favorite Alex Ross pieces of all time. It shows the, the the big seven, you know, now reassembled or what have you, descending on the scene, and it's just, I, it's just one of the, my favorite depictions of superheroes I've ever seen in my life. That the way that everything is shaded to where the light is behind them, just you know them coming down and descending, like the seven angels alluded to in the beginning of the book. 
it's just uh, I, I, I'm stunned when I see uh, that art. I mean, that's like you were saying, Bill, about the the scene where Superman reemerges in issue one. This is a scene for yeah. me that just I just kind of when I first saw it, it just kind of took my breath away. I'm just like, wow. Who knew comics could be this beautiful? You know? As I say, if you look at the uh, at that vision at the first page with the passage of the seven angels, I mean that is the same. That's their silhouettes. That's the same. That is his vision. That Wesley's vision that he saw the arrival of the of the of our heroes. Yeah, that's amazing. And I I thought to myself more than once that that wouldn't it be cool artistically. Like I need to tell Alex Ross how to do his job. But uh, how cool would it have been? Because the, the way the sun is uh, is backlighting them, and the way they're kind of you know foreshadowed, um, literally, not not metaphorically, it would have been cool to have seen a panel with uh, them kind of a silhouette emerging out of it. But you know, again, you know, I'm sorry, Alex, uh, I don't, I don't even want to begin to uh, tell you how to draw because um, this, you're you're right, this is amazing, and this is the kind of thing that um, that, that you want to see in a frame, you know, in your study. I'm, I'm amazed by it, and uh, I just I can't get over uh, the depiction of Hawkman, and uh, I'm I'm fairly amazed with um, you know just all of it. I mean, I just I, the, the Green Lantern armor it gives me goosebumps. It's doing it right now. If you could see it, it's doing it right now, and um, you know the the Flash, everything. I just you're right. Uh, what a what a perfect uh, what a perfect panel. It's just amazing. <laughs> wow. Yes. And, yeah. See, you did have something to say after all, Bill. Oh, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm faking it. Uh, but uh, the, not only that, but the uh, the idea that the uh, that what's getting ready to happen here is a, a mighty administration of justice. You know, you just know that, uh, you know, this is it. Bad guys, good guys, uh, whatever they are, you know, their time is coming to an end. And um, hope, it, uh, hope it works out for everybody. Um, but it's just, you know, this is one of those things that... You know, it, just, it had to happen, and for it actually to happen is amazing because it doesn't always work out that cleanly. Plus, we see in, in classic JLA style, while the big guns, Superman and Green Lantern and the Flash, are taking care of things on the outside, in this case, Red Robin is sneaking uh, covertly on the inside to take out the brain trust, which is, I mean, it's a classic JLA play, you know. You go in, Superman, Green Lantern, Flash, guns blaze, and meanwhile, Batman is sneaking in and taking out the command center. Yeah, it is amazing, and in my uh, um, one of my first thoughts uh, uh, was you kind of wonder, you know, is uh, is Red Robin? Uh, I mean, obviously he doesn't come out down out of the clouds with them, but you know, is the Red Robin part of the JLA at this point, or is this just a a tasty little coincidence? And we find out what the answer is later, but I just I think it makes for an interesting uh, uh, couple of pages uh, where you wonder is this uh, is this Red Robin kind of working on his own? Or um, you know, again, is this in concert with uh, um, the, the big baddies basically uh, pulling a uh, a feint? Just amazing. Plus, I think for the first appearance of Red Robin in "quote unquote" Kingdom Come continuity on Earth twenty two over here, he's got. I mean, his symbol is exactly like uh, Batman's. The original, uh, more familiar yellow circle. It's just reversed, and plus, it's the logo for the Blackhawks out of DC uh, history too. That should mean more uh, as far as um, America and, and nostalgia than the Minutemen, even though they're dressed up like George Washington and America Mando. Yeah, but the Blackhawks yeah. are real heroes, and the America Mando looks like a giant vending machine with all the cybernetics and everything sticking off of him. So exactly, and you know, plus, I mean, they're at, they're at the Statue of Liberty. This is where you know when you know uh, post World War One, post World War Two. This is where everyone from you know 
Europe and, and everywhere else across the, the, the world came. And this is, you know, one of the first things that they saw was the Statue of Liberty. And I think, and, you know, we've, uh, you know, stayed away from politics here, but, you know, I think that the fact that um, Alex Ross is a member of the United Church of Christ and the fact that uh, his father is a UCC minister, um, they certainly have, um, you know, their uh, political leanings, specifically democratic. And I think that idea of all-inclusiveness, and I, I'm not going to spout dogma, but more or less one of the mainstays of the, uh, of the UCC faith is everyone is welcome here. And I think that that really speaks through um, the United Nations scenes, even though those are difficult scenes to watch when they decide to drop the bomb later on in issue four. But I can definitely see Alex Ross's politics at work with the Justice League helping all people, not just, quote-unquote, Americans. You know, these are potential Americans. These are people whose, you know, lives deserved, uh, excuse me, whose lives deserve to be saved. You know, not just arbitrarily picking and choosing battles like Magog or Americommando. And American Commando even says at the beginning, it's a perversion of the writing that's on the Statue of Liberty. You know, he declares war on the huddled masses, you know. He declares war on those who are coming for refuge in America, which, I mean, goes against the very ideal of America. So I totally get what you're saying, and I, I totally get the comedian parallel, too. It's like hyper-conservatism dressed in a superhero suit, you know. Okay, so we uh, the, clean, the battle's cleaned up by uh, Wonder Woman and... Superman will spot welding on the Statue of Liberty to fix it. And then the uh, heroes gather in front of a very familiar-looking building to uh, make a statement to the press. Every, everybody recognizes this building they're descending? Oh, definitely recognize. We also know that they're identified as a U.N. building. Can I, can, I, can, I, can I say it? Absolutely. Meanwhile, back to the Hall of Justice. Okay, I just had to get that <laughs> out of my system. I always wanted to be Ted Knight. I always thought he had the best voiceover job ever. Yep. Um, but the... Um, Assembled heroes, um, the big seven as they were in this version, uh, stand in front of the what is uh, determined to be the United Nations building in the story, but we know as the Hall of Justice, and explain what they're going to be doing. And they, they lay it out right in front of uh, the, the press and everyone what, what their intentions are. You know, They made a mistake to walk away. They abandoned their responsibilities. And they're going to try to make things right again. Unfortunately, it's... Superman version of things that are right, which doesn't sit right with everyone. Well, I think uh, very similar. It's all, I'm, I'm sorry, real quick. I just wanted to mention it's also very similar to um, J.M. De Mateus's um, squad and Mark Grunewald's Squadron Supreme from uh, Marvel in the uh, late '80s, where the superheroes decided that uh, people were not doing a very good job of running the Earth and they were going to run things. And uh, this is like one step away from that. Uh, they've decided that they're going to police. Their own. They're going to police their own, uh, their own meta-human population, and they're going to determine what is right and wrong as far as the code of conduct for that meta-human population. That's that's a great point. That Squadron Supreme is uh, is a fantastic read. It's actually one of the uh, one of the first uh, trade paperbacks that I bought uh, from in stock, and, and it's just it's one of my favorite stories. I had most of the issues when they came out, but uh, you're right. The parallels uh, parallels are eerie. Um, now, one thing I think about. Uh, Superman's approach to all this is it seems like Superman's approach is basically very straightforward, very honest. His approach is kind of corrupted by uh, Wonder Woman. I mean, uh, in a way, she, she's kind of his lady Macbeth here. She basically talks him into slash puts him in a position slash forces him 
to take on a more militant uh, role than, than he uh, originally uh, uh, dreams that he's going to have to. And, of course, a lot of it is, you know, his relative naivete and not realizing that a lot of these so-called heroes out there um, are not going to want to um, get under, you know, his and the JLA's wing and that um, that they're going to have to imprison them or what do you do? You send them into the dimension? You send them to Earth-22, I guess. Oh, wait, they're already there. But, uh, you know, how do you... How do you deal with a superhuman population that uh, that doesn't want to uh, play nice? And um, I guess we figured out how they do that in uh, in issue three, which uh, which is pretty incredible. But um, I can't figure out why the uh, UN building does look exactly like the Hall of Justice. Are we supposed to think that the UN co-opted the Hall of Justice during the JLA's absence? Or is this no, the, the, Bill, the Hall of Justice only existed in the Super Friends cartoon. It was only recently, with uh, the Meltzer relaunch of Justice League of America, the, the Hall of Justice more or less came to fruition with John Henry Irons and John Stewart's blessing. So okay. this is just one of those wink and nods to us as readers. It's no secret that Alex Ross is a huge fan of Super Friends as well. Yeah, And there's, a, uh, there's also a... Um, uh, a good nod to Super Friends later on in the story that we'll uh, we'll reference when we get to it. Do you see Dan and Jaina? <laughs> I forget what the dog's name is. Uh, uh, so I couldn't reference him. Wonder Dog. Wonder Dog is Marvin <laughs> Wendy. Don't forget the Gleek is the monkey. The space monkey Gleek. <laughs> Actually, though, there was a really good episode of Justice League Unlimited that used um, analogs of those characters very effectively called Ultimatum. Check it out. It was actually uh, they they took Black Vulcan and Samurai, and the Wonder Twins and Apache Chief, and made them cool. It was kind of exciting and, and uh, incredible in its own way. But anyway, I'm a little I, off track here. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress, as Peter David says. I am in love with the Justice League Unlimited. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I'm trying to remember that exact episode. I don't, so that's my bad. But uh, I'll research that. And uh, I'll write a blog entry on it. Yeah, the title's called Ultimatum. Uh, it's it's pretty good. It turns out they're part of Cadmus, but that's a, that's a whole other podcast. Uh, I would <laughs> love to do a JOU one eventually. You know, that would be awesome because it's one of Fair my favorite enough. cartoons of all time. As the JLA flies away, uh, the Spectre brings Norman inside the UN building, where we see some very frightened regular humans. Not sure what to expect. One of them says, "Why am I not surprised?" They're they're basically it's a. Uh, Norman says, "There's fear in the room," and Spectre says, "No, it's it's a validation of fear." So they've been afraid that the superhero community is is going to take over for a long time now. It's just now that they've they've been given their proof. Now they've been shown that okay, they really do want to come in and take over, and maybe you know mankind's days are numbered now. Now this is one of the few points in this in this four issue run where I kind of raised my Spock eyebrow and thought, really? As, as you said, um, Norman says there's a fear in the room. Spectre replies, no, validation of fear. Longer the mortal suspected, uh, yada, yada, yada. My first thought was, how do you equate the Justice League showing up with things getting worse? You know, how are things, how could things possibly get worse? I, I guess the, the only thing that I can think of is that these, these so-called superheroes these days are so self-absorbed 
and so into their own little worlds that they don't think broadly enough to want to take anything over. But it seems like society has crumbled to the point where any attempt at restoring some order has got to be a good thing. Um, and, you know, why these people automatically assume that Superman wants to become the president of Earth, um, I think uh, is very interesting. I, it seems like a true assumption to me, and we know what happens when you assume. But um, I, I don't have a problem with it. I just kind of thought it was interesting that, um, that this is the point where they think, oh, boy, we're in trouble now. Because uh, personally, as a reader, I would have thought, okay, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe this is the equivalent of the market actually bottoming out at this point. Because, you know, again, Superman has never been a totalitarian. Uh, obviously, he could be, uh, you know, if he wanted to. But, you know, I would not think that, oh, God, the Justice League, they're looking to come in and, and take everything over and, you know, become a fascist state. So I, I, I don't know what thoughts uh, you gentlemen have on this, uh, if I'm just completely off base. Yeah, I thought it was a good point. I guess or I wouldn't have said it. But it's not superheroes, Bill. It's metahumans. This this generation, and probably uh, the tail end of the one before it, haven't known these people, and okay. they're not called heroes. They're called metahumans. That's that's <laughs> to me. That's a very '90s in and of itself. I want to say, but that's it's it's not a rejection of the Justice League. It's uh, I almost want to say like on a like a, a a chromosome DNA level. It's a rejection of what they are. Because here's what happened with Magog. What happens when Superman is around? What happens when Batman's in Gotham? The freaks come out, the Joker and the Riddler. You know what I mean? They have that kind of attraction. <laughs> you know, it's like Batman, quote-unquote, makes his villains. Uh, is, is the running excuse, at least. But here's someone, Superman, who everyone will follow and no one's voted for. And I think that's that's a typical political reaction. Here's someone who's just, for the most part in this story, been cheered for and elected savior with his team of seven without one ballot being cast. That's that's fear. That's okay, fear. That's that, uh, when was the last time a politician uh, voluntarily wished to give up power? You know, usually attaining those seats of power for whatever reason, colors a, a, a fairly normal person into becoming what we think of as a career politician who will uh, hold on to the clutches of power at almost any cost, um, uh, including the detriment of the society he or she uh, supposedly represents. I know, and then you get the, de- the Dick Cheney death squad after you, and that's even worse. Yeah. Uh, I think Tell it's interesting it. that, uh, that these, uh, the, the one thing I thought was that these, you know, how long has the Justice League been away from the public? I mean, a maximum of 20 years or so? I mean, 30 years, absolute max? I mean, Superman, uh, Batman, Green Lantern have all definitely aged, but it can't be more than a generation since they were on the scene. And all the guys gathered around the table, um, including Secretary General Wormwood, um, explain that to me if I'm missing something. Um, but it's like these guys should remember the Justice League having been around, they should remember the relative deterioration of the world since the Justice League ceded, you know, whatever mandate, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily, you know, authority, probably a bad word to say, but, yeah, since the Justice League's gone out of the way, it seems like things have gone, you know, straight downhill. And, again, you know, the idea these politicians don't want to give up any power they've got, is this more a reflection of that they would rather the world suffer while they, while they fiddle um, or are they truly that afraid that the coming of Superman equals a totalitarian state they will never escape from? 
I think when they've been living this long with, you know, these metahumans, not heroes, not villains, but just people with powers who have been just causing all this havoc but not organized, all of a sudden you've got this unifying force that just comes down from, from heaven and says, you know, we're going to do it my way. It's like, holy crap. You know, now they're going to be organized. Now they're really going to be a threat to us. We've got to do something about it now. I, th- I think that's more what I've been seeing. That's how I interpret it as, yeah, sure, they may remember Superman for a force of good, but, you know, they that's not been their recent experience with, with costume, you know, metahumans. That's exactly the point I was going to make. I mean, Superman is such a rallying point. And before, it was just random chaos with the metahumans, you know, like the cable car incident or whatever. Or like we see at the very beginning of the book as Norman is walking down the street. I think the greater threat is the metahumans organizing and working as a united front together rather than just, you know, random occurrences here and there to to think of all the superpowered people as one united force, I think, is where the real threat lies. Yeah, well, unless the humans have a plan to get rid of all the metahumans, um, they were going to, you know, these metahumans at some point, whether it was later this year or 10 years from now or a generation from now, the metahumans eventually would come around and say, okay, um, you know, we've had fun with each other, now what? Uh, unless we plan on leaving the Earth and finding another planet to plunder, then basically we've got six, eight, ten billion humans uh, as playthings. And I just think that, it, that unless these politicians are being incredibly short-sighted, what are the odds? Ah. Um, that there would come a point where, you know, where the metahumans would become a more cohesive front and pose that danger to humanity in general that they're so afraid of, which is why I just... I. I don't get why the coming of Superman uh, is the catalyst for the great fear. Now, I, I don't but, know. I, I'm afraid I'm starting to go in circles now. So, you know, well, but, well, Bill, they do have a plan, and the plan is they have the Blackhawks with the bomb that we see in issue four. They know that the nuclear option on American soil, or wherever the case may be, is on the table. Okay. When they're in, I think when they're in that meeting right there, they know exactly you know, the possibility of detonating that would, and let's face it, which would probably be worse than Captain Adam splitting, too. It actually proves the, uh, to be. Do you think the, uh, the Judean People's Front, I mean, the, uh, the human, Humankind Liberation Front, do you think that uh, that is known to the Secretary General and his UN cronies? It's the People's Wait. Front of Judea? Hello? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wait, no, the UN has the bomb. The Mankind Liberation Front has Luthor. Yes. And, and, the, and, the, and the Mr. Mindworms. So and reverse. a bunch of other fun stuff. Which we'll but I would say um, it's not brought up, but everybody's shocked to see the bomb. Let's put it that way in issue four. Good point. Okay, yeah. moving, moving along. We see Superman uh, take a stop by the ruins of uh, Wayne Man. And we recognize a very familiar clock, grandfather clock. It's now destroyed and bent. And he makes his way down to the Batcave, where we get to see Batman in his present version. It's an older gentleman with a back brace, which is kind of an allusion to um, Nightfall, which was going on about the same time as this comic, yes? But um, we see um, Superman come in and plea, uh, make his his case to Bruce, asking for his help. And Bruce is... uh, appropriately cagey and non-helpful <laughs> and uh, con- confirm- uh, kind of confrontational to Superman. While he's talking to Superman, he's in the middle of stopping a crime with one of his bat robots, uh, keeping his totalitarian state in uh, Gotham in check. He ultimately rejects 
uh, Superman and decides not to help him. But we, uh, at the end of the scene, we see who he actually has allied himself with, which is uh, Ted Cord, Dinah Lance, and Oliver Queen, also known as uh, the Blue Beetle, Black Canary, and Green Arrow. All of which, by the way, are regular human uh, characters that don't have any superpowers unto themselves. I, I believe, well, except black, for Black, black Canary, yeah. Sonic Scream. But I mean, we mostly see them as as human people. We don't see them as uh, uh, you know the exalted metahumans. Uh, they, I mean, they're wearing bomber jackets. They look like people's parents. And uh, then Bruce reveals to the uh, the other three in his uh, alliance. Some of the other people that he has on tap that he's already talked to, uh, the pieces on his uh, chessboard, so to speak. And we see uh, the next generation of Black Canary, uh, Dr. Fate, uh, Wildcat, Zatara, and others who he's already enlisted to his side in, in this uh, upcoming conflict. Evidently, man has seen this coming for a long time and has, like Batman always does, he has a plan. Yeah, and remember, he has to turn down Clark here because he knows that he's going to toss in with Luthor later in the story. Right, but we don't know that at this point in the story as we're reading right. it. Uh, as far as we know, he is making a valid argument against Superman and for the human race and not being babysat by metahumans, which would make perfect sense since Batman you know, ultimately is just a man. Yeah, this is one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes in the entire Kingdom Come run here, just Superman showing up in the Batcave, and especially, you know, the you get the direct mansion. He uh, floats downstairs, and I don't know why it affects me so much, but him floating across the partially submerged Batcave, I mean, even the Batcave is now underwater. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's a bad scene. And then, you know, you see what basically looks like Gregory Peck here, with an exoskeleton on, and I just I, I love the design of it, uh, the, uh, the the fake spine going down his back, the way the two deal with each other. You know, it's just Mark Wade could not capture the essence of Superman and Batman better. Everything Batman says is everything that Batman would say, and uh, you know, Superman is his typical you know grown up Boy Scout. But when Superman finally leaves, I just I love the the virtual laugh out loud moment that uh, Oliver Queen gives us, complaining that he's probably sterile now to the Superman's X-rays. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know Ted Cord with his uh, his great scientific comeback, and it, the, the way that whole scene plays out, it just it just gives me a warm feeling in the pit of my belly, knowing that uh, that Batman is still on the case. Um, you know, knowing that that. I don't know about you guys, and I don't know how the readers felt about this, but frankly, I feel better about the world scene knowing that Batman is on the case than knowing that Superman is on the case. And I don't know if that just makes me completely crazy, but I just, you know, maybe that's just because I've always just loved the character of Batman, and, you know, Superman's pretty good, too. But, right, um, but Clark... Clark's response bill is an emotional one. I mean, obviously, I mean, and who's going to argue? Who who wouldn't help after what happened to Kansas? I mean, Smallville's gone. You know, yeah. it, I mean, who wouldn't? But you know, Clark's acting out of a, out of a place of emotion. Look at the Dark Knight, who's been standing vigil. I, I love these pages too. I mean, uh, taking a look at the Bat computer, more or less every scene you see uh, Alex Ross's rendition of the Bat Mite on all the screen on 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 the screens. 
So he's got the yeah. Batmite thrown in there, and then you know Oliver Queen's model was, uh, excuse me, character was based on George Perez. How awesome is that? Okay. Oh wow, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I couldn't help but think Gregory Peck, and uh, is that just a, a great impactful piece? I mean, I just I thought that that personally, you know, just hit me right in right in my my comic book bone. I just that was one of those moments. I think pretty much the. The, the first moment in this issue, anyway, where I really wanted to stand up and fist pump and start cheering um, because Batman is on the case and the great Green Arrow and the great Black Canary are with him and, uh, yeah, Blue Beetle, too. And uh, you know what? Things might actually uh, end up okay. The, uh, the whole Batcave, too, is pretty symbolic for Batman himself. He has no – he isn't – no, there aren't two identities now. You know, there's just Bruce Wayne Batman. There's just one guy. He doesn't care about the veneer of Bruce Wayne anymore now that um, the, the, the villains that came and found his identity destroyed Wayne Manor and destroyed all his ties. He just lives in the Batcave, and he's basically just, you know, everything is run down, even though there's, you know, water on the floor and everything else. He's still fighting the fight of, you know, of Gotham. He's still fighting the, the crime, and he's dealing with, instead of going... And it remind, um, and I know it keeps going back to Watchmen, but it reminds me very much of the scene where Ozymandias um, it, it says, "You know, we can save this world." And the comedian is like, "It's you know, it takes somebody pretty stupid to think that you know a bunch of people in costumes can solve all the problems in the world." You know, super it's the same argument. You know, we can save the world, and Batman is like, "You know, whose world? Your world? My world? You know." So it's a very similar argument. I mean, Superman thinks that things can be solved very simplistically by you know people who want to do right, basically, and Batman doesn't see it that way at all. Yeah, great point. On our next page, we uh, get a little reminder about uh, Wonder Woman and the way you know the, the way that um, she came about and was raised compared to the others. I mean, Superman was an alien, but he was uh, raised by human parents. Wonder Woman has always been an outsider and and raised by warriors which is something we'll see as the issue goes by. You're very uh, good on your observation, Bill, as far as um, Wonder Woman being like Superman's Lady Macbeth in this, because she is the one really driving his ambition to do this. I mean, even in issue one, she was the one who came to the Fortress of Solitude, drew him out of uh, seclusion and hiding to reemerge. And on the next following pages, we see the uh, the campaign, the never-ending battle of Superman to recruit more metahumans to his uh, his cause. He recruits the new Guardian and uh, the new Robot Man, who who uh, was uh, Vic Stone Cyborg. Uh, also, in the, the panel on the same page, we see the Starman that we now see in JSA in the bottom left of the panel, referred to as Kingdom Come uh, Starman, but he's in the Thy Kingdom Come storyline right now in, uh, in Justice Society. Something else we see in this uh, double-page spread, we see the little kids... Uh, with the T-shirts of the Flash and Superman, they're starting to idolize their heroes again. They're starting to look up to the heroes and not be afraid of them, uh, as they were in the beginning of the book. The the idea, you know, the um, the ideology behind the superheroes is starting to change with Superman as its rallying point. And plus, if you want to look at it too, um, the person who's to the right of uh, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, is Brainiac's daughter, oh, yeah. which is a oh, really yeah really, really uh, take on who who is the good guy at this point. I mean, we all know Brainiac 5 from the Legion of Superheroes, and our friend Paul French over there um, is on the level. We know Tom Cowler, Starman is, as well, but uh, Brainiac's daughter, that's kind of like the, uh, 
interesting, like you guys were talking about last uh, Kingdom Come episode, uh, Joker's daughter. It, that that kind of weird, matri- uh, excuse me, patriarchal supposition of your own identity. It, it's kind of a strange thing. It's almost like they are beholden to the Joker. They are beholden to Brainiac. Well, who, what generation doesn't rebel against its forebears? You know what I mean? I mean, every generation rebels against the generation before it. So if you're Joker's daughter, the ultimately way to rebel would to be a hero. The Brainiac's daughter thing is a, is a reference to an XTC song, actually. I don't know if you guys know the British band XTC, but they have written quite a few songs about superheroes, and one of them was uh, Brainiac's daughter. I'm going to have to research that. I, uh, I used to listen to XTC all the time back in the 80s, and it's probably been 20 years now. It's darned unfortunate. Yeah, I spend too much time listening to podcasts these days, and not enough time listening to music. So, I don't know. I, I say it's my failing, but it works for everybody, I guess. Well, there are only two podcasts that matter anyway. I mean, yours and ours. So, I mean, that's only what three hours a week, right? It takes hours to listen to those, though. <laughs> <laughs> See, my thing is, I uh, I don't want to, I don't want to diverge for too terribly long, but uh, my method of listening to podcasts, for the most part is to throw them on a uh, thumb drive, and uh, my the head unit in my car accepts a USB, so I'll uh, put the, uh, the memory stick into the uh, stereo on my car, and I'll listen to it while I'm driving around, which you know, means I'm, I'm listening to them in, in 10, 15, 20-minute chunks, and so sometimes it can take me days to get through a podcast. Um, I, just, I, I haven't, uh, um, haven't re-gotten to the point where I started putting them on my MP3 player and bop around the house with it, so... Uh, yeah, that's that's my problem. Sorry, uh, sorry, viewers out there. Uh, hopefully, uh, you all get the chance to actually uh, sit in front of your computer while uh, doing data entry or, or whatever. But uh, for me, yeah, it, uh, it's uh, it's a little bit harder for me, man. I got it tough. So you know, it's uh, that's why it uh, sometimes takes me uh, a full week to get through uh, an LOD and an HHW uh, double double dip. You know, apologies uh, to to those who uh, who deserve said apology. Probably the listeners. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you feel free to get that out. <laughs> <laughs> the opinions expressed by Bill McDonald are not those of LOD uh, or HHW. <laughs> yeah, I, I will take the heat on this one. <laughs> yeah, on the next page, as we see their, uh, their campaign to uh, draw more people to their side continuing, we see Wonder Woman get a little rough with a, a, a new hero called Cathedral, who I'm not sure... This is a uh, power stained glass in nature. I'm not sure what his deal is, but uh, Superman <laughs> remind, but um, Superman remind, tries to remind her of the importance of human life and how how she has very little respect for it. Diana reminds us that she sees herself very much as being in a war. So we see in this little scene the two different perspectives of Superman and Wonder Woman as they slowly converge as the story goes on. Our next scene, uh, Nor- the Spectre takes Norman to a little um, meeting of the MLF, the Mankind Liberation Front, which is uh, oddly named considering it's all supervillains. Uh, we have Mr. Lex Luthor as the head. We watch Vandal Savage snapping someone's neck because he had uh, one sugar in his coffee and he wanted two. And then we have a, um, as Luthor joins the party, we get a nice little scene and introductions of everyone at the table, thanks to our friend Edward Nigma, the Riddler, who uh, answers uh, everyone's identity as they go around the table, uh, including Lord Naga, who is Cobra, uh, Catwoman, Selena Kyle, Edward Nigma, Vandal Savage, 
uh, Lex Luthor, and Ibn al-Kufash, who they refer to as the heir to the Ra's al Ghul empire. But uh, it's in the Arabic, and I didn't, but I found this out anyway. Ibn al-Kufash uh, translates to son of the bat. So uh, we can infer from this that this is uh, the son of Bruce Wayne and Talia. Uh, who, oddly enough, has shown up in Batman R.I.P. under an entirely different name, uh, Damien. For the longest time, I I picked up issue one of Kingdom Come the same week when I was uh, 16. The same week that I picked up issue one of Batman The Long Halloween. And I picked those two up. This is my first time back to a comic store since I was a kid. And I picked them up strictly on Tim Sale's cover and strictly on Alex Ross's cover to both issue ones of those two series. And I was able to follow those for the better part of 96, 97, and really anticipate. And while I won't talk about the long Halloween, for the longest time, I always wanted Kingdom Come to become, excuse me, I always wanted the DC Universe to become Kingdom Come. Because I could see, you know, on, on multiple readings, I read this once a year, just like I did with Watchmen, I could completely see how all of these things could be so feasible Luthor's, uh, you know, fat, bloated, um, still grinding his gears on how to uh, take down uh, metahumans, and now their new threat, which is the old threat of Superman. And we also see from the Royal Flesh Gang, uh, King, who is kind of eponymous at this point. I mean, there have been so many iterations of the Royal Flesh Gang, I'm not sure that Wade or or Ross is concerned with which one that is in, in particular. Um, but we look at this now and we see the resurgence of Vandal Savage, who has not had a huge year except for uh, 2008 and into Final Crisis with 2009 with his spotlight in uh, Final Crisis Revelations. So it's like, you know, Vandal Savage, the immortal, not the, the not quite first man, the man who claimed in JSA that he, <laughs> that he invented fire when we know that Metron gave it to Anthro himself now. Is, is still alive and kicking. And, you know, Vandal Savage still, uh, despite his, his best intentions, has not been able to seal the deal. This is a group of embittered ex-villains, current villains in some cases. Cobra, uh, recently resurrected in the Faces of Evil mini that came out in January from DC, probably going to play a larger part in the DC universe with um, upcoming uh, titles such as uh, their involvement with Checkmate, uh, the group Cobra, and Selena Kyle dressed in one of her classic Golden A dresses on one of the first appearances uh, she had with Batman. Of course, we could talk about Riddler's glasses, but and I think that the third panel on this page sums up exactly why I think the way I do about this book. And of all the weird pages, and I know this is kind of like the faux Legion of Doom, my personal obsession on this, what, what I see in the third panel is when Shufash talks, what I do is I see Damien, and I I know Jim just hit that, and I don't think the DC Universe is going to become Kingdom Come anymore. I think Kingdom Come is going to become the DC Universe. And that kind of strange reversal in thinking, it it kind of hit me upon multiple readings. We'll talk about this in a little bit when we see Green Arrow talk to the younger heroes. But the fact that Talia and Batman have a son, Damien. Well, I and, I and I know you know he's obviously not popular, but at the same at the same time, like the fact that regardless, he will be the heir to Rachel Ghoul's empire. That is the that is the progeny of Talia. That is the progeny of the detective, uh, a Batman. To me, is is really appealing, and that kind of madness 
to me uh, is is not unsettling, but it's it's I just love playing what if because I think if Kingdom Come does anything, you know, aside from talking about what it means to take responsibility for your actions, something that Magog does not. It also plays the great game of what if with comics. I mean, we've lost, my God, the better part of 30 years of continuity. And with no questions asked, how easily do we accept everything that we see in front of us? Not because it's photorealistic, not because it's written well, but because the archetypes still fit. Luthor is still a villain. Edward's enigma is still scheming. And the generational aspect of DC Comics is still seen in here with Ivan with Wildcat 2, with Jade, with Brainiac's daughter, and everybody else that we've talked about so far. I think you bring up a good point, and I, I agree with you up to a certain point, but I don't think if the characters weren't written as well as they were and weren't as depicted as well as they were, I don't think that the, the internal continuity of Kingdom Come would have, would have held up very well. You make a very oh, good agree. point about the, about the archetypes you know, holding up and, and standing the test of time over generations. And I agree with you. It's really cool to see diff- different iterations over different generations. I mean, what would a son, a son of Batman and Talia you know, do? What would he end up looking like? You know? what would he, you know, I mean, all these different things. It's really amazing. And it's, I mean, what the great thing about Kingdom Come is for me is that it, it's a logical extrapolation of what probably would have happened in the DC universe over that period of time, you know, as opposed to, and I know you guys are fans of this, Earth X, which seemed less coherent to me as far as a, as a continuity and as a history is concerned um, than Kingdom Come does, even though they're very, they come from very similar places. I just, um, I love the fact that um, the Kingdom Come, one of my favorite stories of all time, has kind of gone from a what-if Elseworld to uh, basically official canon. You know, thanks to the official 52 universes, um, you know, it now has its own universe. And I just, I love the fact, uh, because like you, when I first read it, before we had the 52, um, I thought to myself, you know, you, you kind of get stars in your eyes, and you go, man. So you kind of start looking for signs that that our that our our DC continuity is going to move in that direction. And of course, you know, they they have moved, you know, and fits and starts in that direction. But to realize uh, now that it's not necessarily you know going to end up there. That um, that Earth 22 has its own history, um, leaving. Uh, our Earth, uh, or, you know, the JLA's Earth, to uh, come up with their own history. And, you know, Elseworlds are fun, and, you know, What If is fun, but I love the fact that this is no longer just an imaginary tale. You know, this is, you know, something that kind of officially happened in uh, one corner of the multiverse. And it's just, I don't want to go off on a, on a rant here, um, but uh, what I want to see is I want to see more stories told about other universes. You know, I want to know what happened out there. We know what happened in Earth 52, but I want to know what's going on in Earth 37 and Earth, you know, 11 and, and you know, on and on. And I just, I think one of the things that, that, that I love so much is that we get to see what happens in one of the other, you know, parallel, um, parallel Earths. Uh, interesting way to tie it all in together, too, I think, uh, because obviously they had no idea um, this is going to be any kind of official canon when this came out. So I think it's you know again this is so well done that it that it really feels like a part of uh, the official canon, which makes it easier to accept as that. Interestingly, 
the Riddler is in his exact seat that he sat in in the Hall of Doom from the Super Friends cartoon, and you can't beat that. <laughs> and Luthor is in the middle too, right? Just yep. like in the Super Friends cartoon. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, I like I like this Luthor, and we don't see this till uh, till later on a little bit. But this is every Luthor you've ever wanted because you see him as right now as this uh, as the corporate titan. You know, and, and who more than CEOs right now in America is the enemy <laughs> with the golden parachutes and the bailouts and all this other nonsense. But you also see Luthor the mad scientist. I mean, he pawns off later. You know, he'll, he'll pawn off comments like, oh, that Dr. Savannah, boy, he sure was crazy. But like, my God, Luthor can't help himself. If, it's, if it takes uh, building the better mousetrap to steal Savannah's uh, Mr. Mind controls and locks that he puts on Billy Batson, then so be it. Luthor's not above that. I mean, please, are, are we really going to argue about plagiarism when it comes to Lex Luthor and Dr. Savannah? Luthor's going to win. Did yeah, you guys I mean, see the Lex Luthor bailout video this week? On Funny or Die? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was great. That was pretty intense. You can see it right at the homepage of com. Awesome. We uh, we see the meeting. They talk about um, the uh, reemergence of the Justice League and what it means to their uh, little uh, Mankind Liberation Front. Someone mentioned Superman, and it totally flusters Luthor to the point that he calls out his manservant, who looks strikingly familiar, kind of like Uncle Sal, in a weird way. Hmm. <laughs> um, so, hey, Jim, um, a lot of the people that probably have listening to us that know us from uh, the Who Reads the Watchmen uh, series that we've done, probably don't know about Uncle Sal. Can you fill him in? Um, Sal Abenanti is uh, Alex Ross's art dealer. Uh, he's been a frequent guest on many podcasts, including uh, Comic Geek Speak and 11 O'Clock Comics and Around Comics. And he was also Alex Ross's model for Captain Marvel here in uh, Kingdom Come and the other uh, works that Alex has uh, depicted Captain Marvel in. Very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, did the same again. Uh, Uncle Sal was actually depicted on some of uh, Alex Ross's recent covers um, on the James Robinson Superman title. You can see Uncle Sal with his newborn um, as uh, Superman's holding up the Daily Planet globe from crashing again <laughs> on one of uh, Robinson's titles. But um, this is uh, these three pa- these excuse me these four pages of villainy. Um, you know, this is really more than satisfying and. This is, you know, one of those things where you don't know who uh, Cobra is, you look him up. You know, that's, that's one of the great things about this. This, you know, Books like this in Earth-X and uh, in some cases Watchmen, you know, these, they are just great triptychs of said universe. Did you say triptychs? Yeah. Wow, that's a good word. Our, uh, the, our, my company at one point was called uh, Triptych Creative. Um, interesting word, um, horrible for the internet age, though. It's hard to spell, and most people don't know what a triptych is. So, well, uh, you know, that, that word's used a lot in the art community, too. Like, uh, my friend John Burke, uh, out of the, uh, Northwest, uh, he, he had a commission to do every iteration of Batman, Robin, Catwoman, uh, Nightwing costume on one, excuse me, on a series of pages, and, you know, like that, or, like uh, the cover to Jim Lee's X Men number one, where it has all the characters on it. You know, that's that's what we call um, a triptych in the, in the art collecting community too. And when we're about to turn the page here, when Jim goes over the bar, <laughs> this is quite the triptych, I, I'd say. So, uh, what do you think about the, the, these next couple pages here, Jim? 
Well, I think if we were doing a complete annotated version of Kingdom Come, we'd be here for the next three hours going over all the different characters in the bar scene because there are so many Easter eggs and uh, and uh, little asides and whatnot that Alex Ross puts into the crowd. I mean, we see everything from a geriatric Lobo to Steve Miller as the Joker, uh, Tina Turner as the Acid Queen, and uh, a geriatric uh, Creeper as well. Um, but the next scene takes place in the uh, superhero bar where um, Steve Miller as the Joker is uh, playing uh, his arm wrestling the human bomb and then loses in the worst way possible. And uh, the Spectre shows Norman this, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, as it were, of uh, superheroes. Um, again, almost uh, to, to really get the full effect of these pages, one would really have to go through the annotated notes at the back of the, um, the Absolute or online because there are so many characters alluded to, Easter egged, and brought forth uh, from Golden Age um, DC, as well as from other sources. I mean, like I said, Tina Turner is there, uh, Rorschach is there, Steve Miller. Sherlock and, Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes. And as we, uh, we scan the bar, Superman walks in, uses his heat vision on the stock of liquor behind the bar, and says, party's over. And he is retorted by, and here's his reference, if you look at the shirt, that's Super Marvin, everybody, from the Super Friends, all grown up with a leather jacket and a beer in his face. But that's definitely the Super oh, Marvin yeah. T-shirt. And uh, Adam Smasher. Yeah. Right next to the village, basically. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Little Super Friend. Yeah, yeah. Adam Smasher shuts him up. Superman uh, gives his pitch to the group assembled at the bar, telling them that they can be more than what they are now, and that if they don't join him, they will be, as Superman puts it, dealt with, and uh, tries to inspire and rally the troops in the bar. And just as he leaves, two of the legacy heroes, um, Avia, who is the daughter of Scott Free and Big Barda, and uh, Nightstar, who is the daughter of Nightwing and Starfire, start to talk about what Superman has said. And then uh, an arrow, a green arrow, cuts between them, stops their conversation, and Oliver Queen steps out and said, okay, you've heard Big Blue's pitch, now for the democratic response. And this scene is just incredible because um, when I go back and, and read the scene over and over, I, I go back to each panel and look and see all the different people that Ross put in uh, populating uh, the, the bar, uh, all the different versions of all these different people from all different parts of fiction. It's really incredible. It must have taken it forever to block out, to draw, and then to finally paint. I mean, I can only imagine, first of all, the fact is that Captain Cold and Weather Wizard are running the, the own the bar, which is completely awesome, first of all. And then you've got Vril Drox, and then you've got Solomon Grundy as the bouncer. And then you've got, um, I, I think, you know, this scene obviously has the main plot, but like two of the many subplots are really brought up here, too. If you take a look at uh, the initial panel of, of the superhero bar, excuse me, metahuman bar, um, Boston Brand, Dead Man, who, who Norman McKay will... Uh, encounter later on in his uh, mythic, epic, mytho-poetic journey in, in Kingdom Come, notices him. And it's funny that the only two characters that take notice of him is, uh, is Boston, a.k.a. Dead Man, and also um, Wally West, The Flash. Um, that said, on the other page, when um, Jim was talking about um, Marvin, is that two of the new gods, not, not just Atvia, uh, Jim, but the, two of the new gods, Vermin Vundabar and Desaad, are also in the bar. And I think that this, 
to, to understand this, you wouldn't know this if you just had the uh, standard issue, which I had initially, uh, issues when they come out. Because what we'll see later on um, is when Superman goes to uh, Apocalypse to ask its ruler if he could house the super uh, villains or super criminals on Apocalypse. So it's like Vermin Vundabar, an ex, one of the craziest, I think, Kirby villains, uh, underrated, absolutely, in, in Desaad, are exiled from Apocalypse, even though, um, you know, obviously Darkseid's not on the throne. And, you know, from this, you've got, uh, you know, the new Creeper, you've got uh, the, the traditional Plastic Man, you've got Captain Boomerang, you have a hybrid Prometheus, and then you have the crew that you guys talked about for issue one with uh, Ambush Bug, <laughs> which would be 666 and Nightshade and everybody else. And yes, Bill, there is a Santa Claus, but there's also Jan and Zena in here too. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I just it, it, it thought it was interesting that uh, that, uh, that gods would hang out in uh, in a bar, and uh, I don't suppose there's a strong enough parallel to uh, wonder if this is the, uh, the dark club here. Um, but uh, you, sometimes. Sometimes you just never know. I, I man, I'm I'm glad I'm talking to you guys about this. I, I had not noticed half the characters in the bar scene, and I guess that's my fault for trying to, you know, my intention to uh, to soak in all the art. But uh, I just I can't stand it usually, and I just have to get through the story. So um, that's, uh, that's that's my fault there. But uh, but yeah, I, the one thing that struck me is it's a touch odd and, and not a problem in any way. Is that uh, daughter of uh, Big Barda and Scott Free is uh, hanging out in a bar, swilling uh, swilling beers with uh, you know a whole buttload of supervillains. I just uh, I just wonder is this is this like the last place that they all have to go, or uh, you know how how do we explain that uh, pretty much every metahuman you know in the tri-state area is in this one place right now? Maybe it's the only place that will serve them. Yeah, <laughs> because it's run by uh, Captain Caller Weather Wizard, you know. <laughs> I love, I love the uh, the uh, the first time you see the bartender with the uh, the green mask on. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, is this like the uh, the backside of uh, Planet Krypton, or uh, you know? Uh, but yeah, the, the fact that that's actually uh, uh, the Weather Wizard uh, uh, does make a whole lot of sense. And oh, geez, I can't believe I hadn't noticed the uh, the dead man. That uh, oh, as I'm looking at it, um, I just I want to hit myself upside the head for not uh, having noticed that incredible Easter egg there. It does seem so um, obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the one thing I kind of don't like about this sequence, uh, I think, you know, and again, this is the the problem of being, you know, the Superman in a world like this, but um, he comes in, and while the, you know, his, those three little words he says, this doesn't help, could not be more right on, man, um, just to, you know, blow all those liquor bottles up, thinking that, uh, you know, that's going to turn everybody uh, I think is again just another clue, maybe that um, that he is naive enough to be behind the times, and maybe not the answer that uh, people need. Maybe this this starts giving you, you know, this is kind of the second clue here that Superman is not going to ultimately be, you know, the answer. Uh, though he uh, um, he doesn't necessarily want to do this, but he is willing to take on the job. And I think it uh, uh, makes a uh, slight touch bit tragic that you start getting the impression that Superman will not be the one to get the job done. He's like a lot of really uh, well-written villains. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's trying to bring back the superhero aesthetic 
and the superhero morality that was around when he was there before. And he thinks he'll be able to do that in the simplest and most direct ways. But obviously, as we see later, it doesn't work out that way. Well, that's what we interpret him doing, though. Like, that's our interpretance of what he's doing. Um, the, the call to action that Diana gave him was truth and justice. But I completely see the, the super uh, villain analogy. I mean, you've got all kinds of things. I mean, I know this isn't Happy Harry's from Watchmen, but my God, if Rorschach isn't breaking that guy's finger just like he did at, at Happy Harry's in panel two, I'll, I'll be doggone because uh, that's dead on. I mean, this is, this is the, uh, the casting call for, you know, golden and silver age and then uh, modern age and, and bronze as well, DC heroes. You got the, the, the nowhere man uh, of, of Beatles fame. You've got uh, the shout out to Keith Giffen's work with Ambush, but like I had mentioned earlier, and then you've got one of my favorites, which is uh, the Vic Sage question. Plus the, the icicle, uh, <laughs> a great JSA villain, is making his own ice cubes. And I'm done. This is great. <laughs> I, just, I think it's interesting that, uh, that Superman thinks that uh, basically prohibition uh, seems to be the answer here as he blows up all the other liquor bottles. Because even while I think that what Superman is doing is right, um, it's pretty much right here. This is the first time in the story where I think to myself, okay, now he's going about this the wrong way. Um, because you've got to give the people the option of, you know, you've you got to try to pull them in with honey, not vinegar, um, unless they just won't accept that. And, and you know, at, at some point you do have to brain them and drag them back to your cave and tie them up. But I don't think you're here quite yet. I just think Superman is just so disgusted by the whole matter that he kind of loses his, his, um, his, his manners there for a moment or two. Um, because, you know, if you think about it for a little bit, um, you know, you turn people's heads, you know, it's classic psychology that when someone is prone to not want to listen to you, uh, when you bow up and, you know, really surprise them, you know, break something, you know, in front of them or whatever, uh, they're prone to clam up and accept what you have to say even less um, than, uh, than you might otherwise have been. And basically, um, you know, doing something like that, um, that these people are, you know, these people are there to have some drinks. He comes and blows up all the drinks. At this point, they're inclined to blow off anything he has to say and basically close up on him. So his message is not going to get through. Um, uh, even more so than it would have been you know, in the first place. I just, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. When, when I, I, I kind of got a little opposite to his opinion of that because as, as he leaves, you hear the murmuring from the crowd like, oh, my God, he was here. And then you really focus in on the conversation between uh, uh, you know, Barr's daughter and then Nightwing's uh, daughter about, you know, are you in? Are you kidding? I think I feel like I was just asked to be the 13th Apostle. I'd follow him to Apocalypse. You know, the wonder, they're like, you know, in, he's this presence that just inspires them to, to want to come in and and be more than they are. They realize, they're, they're starting to realize, and maybe this goes to their own naivete, you know, because they are so young and inexperienced, uh, along with Clark's, you know, misguided, uh, uh, you know, optimism that's, that's not going to work out in the end. You know, but they're like, you know, we didn't have direction. We've been out there doing this, but now here, here is showing us how to be the hero that we've always heard about. And... And I think for a lot of them, it is going to get through. You know, you know. At least that—that that was my opinion or my impression the first read-through. 
It absolutely does get through, Ken, because she does follow him to Apocalypse. She opens the boom tube right. later in the issue that gets Scott and Barta out of there. We talked a lot in the last issue about the power of Superman as a symbol, and I think we see that again here. Uh, his, you know, him coming into the bar and just being there and talk, you know, it makes such an impression on him because he is so symbolic of that morality, that, that purity of an earlier time. And I think that comes across in this scene very, very well. In uh, the next scene, we see uh, Norman uh, and the Spectre as they go to the new watchtower that's been set up in orbit by the Green Lantern. Uh, we see that Superman's army is growing uh, to almost over two dozen uh, metahumans now, following Superman's lead. And then we uh, go back to uh, another great battle scene uh, drawn by Ross. Uh, this time it looks like it's in Tokyo. And uh, the, the, the battle is starting to wear on Superman. He's starting to get a little frustrated. Starting to, he doesn't quite understand why he's having to fight so hard and why he's having to work so hard to, to convert people to what he sees as the good and right side. And then Wonder Woman now says that she might have a suggestion for what to do with all these metahumans and tells Superman to follow him, follow her. And they end up in Atlantis talking to Arthur, the former Aquaman, who has retreated to be king to his kingdom instead of being an adventurer in the overworld. They ask uh, Arthur if they can house the, super, the metahumans there, and he says no. And just like always, you want to dump all your refuse into the ocean. You can't help them, no matter how uh, you know allied to them they were at one point. And they leave Aquaman's place without any uh, solution to their problem. And as they're pondering the problem from the watchtower, looking down on Earth, they almost have a tender moment, and then it's interrupted by the now grown-up Wonder Girl and Red Arrow, because they found Magog, uh, the cause of the uh, great catastrophe in Kansas. Uh, I was just going to say, it's, uh, the, the great tragedy of this issue is uh, the, the failure to hook up. I think that uh, Superman's, uh, Superman's kiss with uh, a passionate Wonder Woman, I think, uh, probably would have would have helped, and uh, they might not have uh, been quite so uptight afterwards, because uh, this clearly isn't helping Superman's uh, uh, psyche out any. Uh, I think he could have used a, a, a long, steamy embrace with a... a uh, it would have got us, you know. You could do a lot worse if you had to hook up with somebody. Um, but I think he, uh, at this point, he's getting to the point where he really needs uh, some kind of, you know, more physical manifestation of a connection to humanity in any sense. I mean, I realize that Wonder Woman is no more human than he is. In fact, possibly less, because she was crapped out of clay and he was an alien who was uh, adopted. But um, I think that that outpouring of emotion might have helped a little bit, um, and just you know the fact that uh, the fact they didn't get to have that, uh, the uh, I, I really, I really, really, really felt bad for him, um, especially after the frustrations uh, he's been uh, uh, putting up with uh, for the last few uh, uh, few weeks, few whatever uh, you know whatever passage of time I was, and uh, the whole line about how. Uh, Superman's army begins to meet with success more infrequently, and uh, clearly each rebellion further frustrates them. And, you know, it, it makes you wonder, are they grasping at straws? Did, did he do so little thinking ahead, um, or is he so surprised at the reaction of the metahumans? Because um, why would you have thought that, uh, that Aquaman, sorry to go back here, why would you think that Aquaman uh, would take in the wretched refuse of the metahuman population? 
Um, why would you think that would be a secure location? You know, what location could possibly be secure? And I guess we'll find out that the answer is, well, there really isn't one. But, um, you know, it just it seems like, you know, Superman's plan is beginning to fray here at the edges. And maybe a, a tiny, you know, emotional respite from all that would have done him a world of good. And, uh, you know, I feel, uh, I, I, again, feel sorry for him that he didn't get that. You know, he seems as steely and as cold and as reserved as he has been this entire story. And, um, yeah, anyway, so there's my little aside for that. Uh, another powerful scene, one of many, and uh, almost as powerful as the uh, scene to come to transition onwards into the story. <laughs> Take it away, Jim. <laughs> he's, he's frustrated at the metahumans and frustrated uh, from Wonder Woman, and I could make a joke about Big Blue here, but I won't. Okay, so we see the next scene. They found Magog, and he's in Kansas, randomly trying to fix things and then getting frustrated and destroying them. And Superman confronts Magog as to what he's, uh, what he's done and what he's let happen. Magog blames Superman for what has happened, and Superman blames Magog. And we see in a flashback series and scene what happened, why Superman left, why, what happened with him and the Joker, and why Magog took over as the dominant superhero on Earth-22 in the next couple of scenes. And I just got to say, I love Alex Ross's Joker. I really think it's like... Thank you. I love true, it. True to the way the Joker should be. It should be horrific, scariest clown you've ever seen. And Alex Ross, to my mind, really nails the Joker in a way that you know few other artists do. It, it really is the, a love child of Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger, isn't it? For the top panel, for the top panel, absolutely. I, I agree with that. That's that's definitely Jack, oh, absolutely. Jack Nicholson up there. That I could see that totally. But I mean, like, and the good thing about this, and you know, Kingdom Come is is pushing its fifteenth anniversary at this point, which is crazy to think. But I mean, my God, his Joker only gets better. His Joker only gets better when you look at Justice from a couple of years back, and now with the current Batman covers. Or the uh, portrait been, he did of uh, Joker and Harley for that uh, T-shirt and for poster. The, well, for Harley Quinn number one, when Denny, when mm-hmm. uh, Paul Denny brought brought, uh, brought uh, Harley into the DC universe after No Man's Land for real, uh, you know, uh, his Joker gets <laughs> more and more sinister. And I would I would I would likewise say that for how uh, Ross uses the the Joker as well. I mean, this is probably I, I wouldn't say the creme de la creme. He's got a, a heck of a role in justice as well, a little fourth wall breaking and whatnot. But at the same time, I mean, man, there is no doubt about it that Jimmy Olsen's uh, watch is blinking and Superman's nowhere near to be found to save them uh, at the Daily Planet. I mean, that is, that is read loud and clear to me as a reader. Right. We see that Magog made the hard, what is perceived to be the hard decision that Superman could not make and just out and out kills the Joker in broad daylight with his energy weapon. And we see in the court of public opinion with a uh, cameo by Pac-Man that uh, Magog is overwhelmingly uh, supported by the people of Metropolis in his actions, which makes total sense if you think about it because the Joker has killed, you know, how many people over the years? And, you know, and finally the, the DA it seems has just thrown up his hands and says justice is done by this guy being, you know, with horns and cybernetic implants killing the Joker on a broad daylight on the street. It's funny that I guess now that we know Magog's backstory from 
Justice Society of that Kingdom Come that he's actually a descendant of the Third World. And if we were to follow DC continuity, this would probably be somewhere in the Fifth World at this point. The dawn, or excuse me, the age of man as a god, as Morrison put it in Final Crisis. Like, if this was continuity, but we know it's Earth-22, yada, yada, yada. But um, I think it's interesting that, that a god, a, a Kirby-esque new god, if only in name and, and lineage figure that we know it, uh, Magog to be as now, brings about another apocalypse, in, in particular in Kansas. And I think, going back real quick to... Um, another thing is, if you take a look at, you know, Alan Scott as Green Lantern, the lantern is imbued within him. And where have we seen that recently? Well, we've seen that in the Green Lantern title when, right after the Sinestro Corps, the Guardians instituted the Alpha Lantern uh, program, which infused uh, the most uh, justice zealot type lanterns uh, to be, John Stewart was almost one of them, to be human lanterns. So I think that this is like, uh, just to kind of do a callback to what I was talking about earlier, I think this is one of those instances where you see Kingdom Come becoming the DC Universe. Coincidental, you know, who can be sure? Morrison came up with that, you know, and, and Jeff uh, Johns went with it. Like, let's not get that mistaken. But what a, what a series of events that happened in this book. What a series of events that happened. And... I, I really feel that, much like Watchmen, my God, the stakes are high in this book. I really think it's cool that Johns is taking the threads of these stories and weaving them into the you know present-day DCU in such a, a way that makes sense. You know, It would have been very easy just to, like, for instance, the Kingdom crossover, which I guess we'll talk about after issue four, just kind of... You know, kind of tried to shove Kingdom Come into the DCU, and it didn't quite work. But with Johns and Morrison now, they're taking the threads of these stories and saying, "Okay, well, where would this have come from? What would make sense? You know, that would bring this logical outcome." And I think that's a much more effective storytelling technique, and it's really uh, you know paying dividends now in the DCU. I mean, we see Magog now. We see you know all these different hints that Kingdom Come may come to pass. I also wanted to point out in the courtroom panel where Superman is, uh, is you know, accusing Magog, that Superman has his ponytail, which was current with DC continuity at the time this comic came out. Uh, Superman had the long hair. It was after uh, Reign of the Superman. I have a general, I have a, uh, just a general kind of uh, Wonder Woman question for you guys. So, um, and I know a lot of you guys have seen the new uh, Bruce Timm, Warner Brothers, uh, straight-to-DVD Wonder Woman movie. Um, in, in that movie, uh, she doesn't fly. But in in this story, um, we see Diana flying an awful lot. And I'm wondering, what's the precedent for Wonder Woman and flying? I mean, I know we've got the invisible jet all over the place here in, in the animated feature. But as someone who, honestly, I've only start, recently started reading her title from recommendation from Darren and Paul over at the Legion of Substitute podcasters, um, I, I don't have experience with Wonder Woman. And I'm wondering if you guys could help me with uh, her and flying and maybe not flying. Well, uh, I know for a long time she couldn't fly, and that's why she had the invisible airplane, was to get her around from place to place. But, I mean, I think it really depends on writing her. I mean, I know when Perez wrote her, uh, she didn't fly, but then later she did. So, I, think, I guess it just depends on the story and who's writing it. I don't, I don't know what the actual continuity answer is. So, we see Superman confront Magog, and the rest of the super metahumans are being held back by Wonder Woman as the two confront one another. 
And then uh, he, Magog makes the point that uh, he really was the man of tomorrow and that he was afraid of the future that he represented. And uh, Superman turns up the heat by telling Magog that he must be proud of what he has done. And Magog lashes out at Superman, but then ultimately falls in shame, even though he, uh, he blames Superman for what happened, for not changing. But he also blames himself for failing and tells Superman to take him away, to arrest him, kill him, do whatever it takes to make the ghosts stop screaming in his head. I just I love the way the scene plays out too. Because did anybody see um, this resolution of the scene? I mean, he figured it would be a knockdown, drag out. He would be led away, kicking and screaming. Just Mark Wade's genius in in turning this into a man who'd been so deeply troubled by this that he just wanted an end to it all um, was just staggering to me. Yeah, it's more of a fight of ideologies than of fists. You know, in our next scene, after uh, the debate, as it were, between Magog and Superman, we find uh, Superman on uh, Apocalypse, and in shadow we see the new the ruler of Apocalypse looking down over his hellish land, and uh, we in shadow because we're revealed on the next page that it is not actually Darkseid who we are led to believe by the shape of his head in the shadow, but it is actually Orion, who has taken on a very Darkseid-like countenance in his old age, warns Superman that is very close between destroying and saving a world, and that he once thought, as Superman did, that he was going to liberate and free all the members, all the people of Apocalypse, but then they were used to being under the, tyrann- uh, the tyranny and the shackles of Darkseid for so long that they did not know what to do in any other situation. And that's why he ruled Apocalypse pretty much the same way his father did, even though he hated everything his father stood for. And Superman ends up uh, dissing him, saying, I can learn nothing from you, even though later on in the story we find out that actually he could have learned something from Orion if he had listened to him, and finds out that he won't be able to build his uh, metahuman prison on Apocalypse either, uh, much like uh, Superman or Aquaman uh, denied him Atlantis, Orion denies him Apocalypse. But he meets some powerful allies on the way out of Apocalypse, uh, Scott Free and Big Barda from you know, the Jack Kirby uh, Fourth World, who are the sons of Ayla, uh, who opened the boom tube for Apocalypse for them to begin with. I really love the line in this part where he says, I've, always, I've heard that your story has always been generational. And that's, that's very telling not only to you know, the story of the new gods, but also the story that we're, we're seeing in Kingdom Come Proper. Any thoughts think, on the Apocalypse scene? Um, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to have to throw my two cents in here with Apocalypse. I think that if if we're looking at this objectively, that Orion, presumably with the combined help of the well good or the light new gods from the fourth world, can't bring control to Apocalypse, then maybe Hell on Earth, aka villainy, is just a very real possibility. Maybe. We'll, I'll take the side of devil's advocate here and say that no matter what is done, that this will still exist. Because if Orion despised anything, it was his father. Maybe he's just more realistic than Bruce or Clark and understands that sometimes like that festering sore, those things that we hate, in, in his case, Darkseid, in Bruce's case, the Joker, in Clark's case... Uh, you know, Luthor and more in this book, Magog, 
just exist because they exist. And no amount of apocalyptic volcanoes or scot-free, um, which we'll see later in the, in the Gulag with next issue, none of those things can keep a force, not people, but a force like evil contained. And you can also say the opposite about good with Atlantis or New Oa that Alan Scott has floating in the stars, that great emerald beacon we see. But, you know, you can't contain truth and justice. Honestly, the thing is, it speaks to the fact that Orion had the best of intentions. He wanted to elevate the people of Apocalypse and bring them to the level of, of the, you know, the people of New Genesis, a free and, and, and safe and happy people. He had the best of intentions, and yet what happened? Apocalypse is still a hellish landscape, just the way it was under his father. And it's the same with Superman. Superman is the best of intentions. He wants to unite all the metahumans under the banner of truth and justice and fair play. Foreshadowing here, perhaps we see that, you know, no matter, you know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And uh, we see that road being paved right in front of us. But we do set up the, uh, the Scott Free and the Big Barda relationship that we do see that's very important in the next issue, as Adam uh, alluded to. And we see them slowly start to build something large, something to help contain the metahuman <laughs> problem. Sorry, guys. A little cough there. I think um, it's our logo. <laughs> Yeah, it looks <laughs> very similar to our logo, indeed. But, you know, let's, let's not spoil the reveal for next issue, Adam, okay? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so they start to, uh, they start, they're starting to build their, their little uh, um, place to keep all their little psycho metahumans who won't do what they say. Superman sees it as a stronghold of justice. But as we see in the next issue, it's more of a, uh, a powder keg. And as we see them erecting this, we flash back to the Mankind Liberation Front, where Norman and the Spectre are, have just arrived. And, uh, as well, Batman, Oliver Queen, Ted Cord, and Dinah Lance have shown up to join forces with the Mankind Liberation Front. And the strangest of bedfellows, Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne, shake hands at the very end of the issue, united against what they perceive as the metahuman threat. I read that for the first time, and I just thought... This world really has gone crazy. I, I was so, I was actually upset when I read this read this page. I'm like, no, this can't be right. There's something more on more here, and of course I kept going. I wanted to find out what the deal was, but it just completely disillusioned me to what I thought I was reading at that at this particular moment. It doesn't feel right, does it? No, it doesn't feel no, right. No, not it? at all. It makes sense in the story, though, because oh. I mean, all those characters are very human. I mean. I mean, Green Arrow can shoot an arrow real well. Ted Cord can build gadgets, and you know, Black Canary can scream and knows karate. I mean, it makes sense that they would want to be on the side of mankind uh, in the superhuman battle. I mean, when I read this, I mean, I wasn't you know 16 like Adam or whatever, but I was like, this is a total plot twist. But it makes total sense within the sense of the story, you know. And at the same time, I realized there was probably more going on than met the eye. Right. And you know, and, and look, look who was the middleman in that Ivan, who we are our best get at this point could possibly be Damien in the future. I mean, if you look at Batman number six six six, Damien's future is more or less foretold. Maybe no chicken bones or tea leaves or a crystal ball had to be read, but according to Morrison, in, in that issue of Batman, my God, Damien is Batman in the in the far far distant future in Gotham, and let me tell you. Uh, that Gotham needs a Batman in the Morrison verse. I love the Morrison verse. 
And thus ends uh, issue two of Kingdom Come. Uh, any yeah, over thoughts on this on this uh, on this issue, gentlemen? Well, I just I kind of um, I kind of thought as, as we conclude and we see the great reveal of Bruce and Lex joining forces, it, my first thought was, okay, what what does Batman know that we don't know? I mean, what what could drive him to? you know, literally align himself with Superman's bitter, you know, most bitter enemies, because that it tells you that something's going on in this world um, that maybe we haven't totally grasped yet, because, you know, how could you ever think that Superman uh, and Batman would be that diametrically opposed? And they've always been opposite sides of the same coin, but they are the same coin nonetheless. And for Superman uh, to completely lose his you know, you know, one of his staunchest allies. Um, you know, I, I think it says it says more than than simple words can convey. Um, and, hey, and Bill, uh, Dark, Dark Dark Knight Returns is on the phone for you. Okay. As far as Batman and Superman being at war. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Um, <laughs> now I guess that's uh, yet another Elseworld story too. So. Uh, um, I guess we can we can wrap that into uh, the mythology um, and, and take that uh, for what it's worth. And it is worth something. That was the, the one thing that got to me was, um, you know, something heavy is, is going down that, uh, that the humans um, are ready to align with other humans, even though you know, they've been fighting against them. Just the fact that the tables have turned so dramatically, you know, for basically the entire world, that um, Batman feels he has more in common with Lex Luthor at this point than Superman, um, because we know that Superman's intentions are good, though that may be you know that that may be good intentions paving the path to hell. But you know, to align yourself with Lex Luthor, you know that the Batman, you know, you you want to at least think that Batman knows that he's crawling into a den of snakes, and you know, you kind of pray that he does have a plan to take them down because on the surface, this is one of the more stunning reveals, um, certainly of this particular um, comic book uh, series, uh, if not any comic book I've read in a long, long time. I mean, it's just, it, it, it seems like, you know, so many of the adjectives, you know, we're using for the story are, you know, hyperbolic and this certainly seems no exception, but it just, uh, it just makes you wonder, you know, what's, you know, I, you want to be inside Batman's head to know what he's really thinking. Because it doesn't seem on the surface that this would be uh, uh, maybe a logical move, but not uh, the right move. So, you know, this, uh, I don't know about you guys, this makes me want to uh, plow into issue three and uh, figure out what the heck's going on. Because at this point, I'm intrigued. <laughs> well, Bill, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait a little while to get to issue three because we're only doing one issue an episode. I'm sorry, buddy. I know, I know. Isn't that wonderful? You have that's, to wait and suspenders. That's what we call a tease. <laughs> oh, man. And what's odd, I think, is that uh, this uh, issue two of four, um, it seemed like uh, um, there was a lot of exposition going on. Um, it seemed like uh, um, the action sequences while there were muted compared to the uh, the other three uh, pieces of the spy. Of, of the four, it seemed like, uh, you know, it was almost like uh, uh, Attack of the Clones, where 
maybe Empire Strikes Back, uh, to, to use a Star Wars illusion, where things definitely happen, but everything is building at this point, and you're not getting, you know, resolutions. Not that we should in issue two. It just seems like uh, merely a continuation of the first issue to me, and that the, uh, the story uh, is getting ready to hit the accelerator and really go for broke. Um, so this this issue, I think, uh, is good, but it leads to a sense of anticipation uh, rather than any kind of sense of resolution. Yeah, I get a real sense of all the dominoes being set up to fall. You know what I mean? Like we see the different things starting to come together and coalesce, and we see the different sides of the conflict, and we see the things starting to build up that are going to reach this revelations-type uh, level that we've uh, been alluded to since the beginning of the, uh, the story. So uh, I think that'll about wrap up our commentary on issue two, unless anybody else has anything else you want to add. Oh, I think we're in pretty good shape. We've got a, a wild card episode coming up next week. Um, check the forum. We'll post a thread and some discussion questions up there. And then um, the week after, the last week of March, uh, we're going to have uh, a sit-down, knock-down, drag-out, Pier 6 brawl over uh, the Under the Hood and Tales of the Black Freighter DVD to continue our uh, Who Reads the Watchmen series. Nothing ever ends, Adrian. <laughs> Nothing ever ends. Adrian! <laughs> Please send any uh, emails, comments, or good soup recipes to comments at legionofdudes.com. Or check out our website, uh, www.legionofdudes.com or www.halfhourwasted.com. Both of those will lead you to www.hhwlod.com. You'll see all of our most recent shows from Half Hour Wasted and Legion of Dudes, as well as our entertaining blogs, uh, John's new Blu-ray DVD releases for the week, and assorted uh, cool, cool video interviews, clips, and uh cool geeky stuff that you want to know about so check out our website by all means drop us a line and uh, barring that come see us at uh, Steel City Con in Pittsburgh on uh, April 24th 25th and 26th if you're in Pittsburgh uh, send us an email drop us a line let us know you're coming down and uh, we'll give you a seat for the geek throwdown and we'll see you at the show Bill McGonnell Bill thank you so much man Uh, I appreciate it I'm so jealous of you guys getting to go to an actual uh, Comic Con um, you'll have to tell me what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I got to go to one uh, once uh, way back uh, upon a time, and uh, uh, myself and Russell, Brad, and Frank had a, a grand time there. And unfortunately, uh, going to Comic-Cons is apparently a thing of the, uh, the misty past for us down here in Texas. So, yeah, you get to, so, go, to, uh, get to I, go to Wizard World and say, oh, wait, no, no, you don't do that. Sorry. Oh, wow, yeah. Holy Apparently, I'm going to have to book a, uh, a plane ticket for uh, San Diego or uh, New York or something from here on out. Hey, so, San Diego, uh, 40 passes already gonna, sold out there, bud. I was going to say, they got sold out. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, never mind that, then. <laughs> I'll find a scout ticket or something. Guess you just have to go to, you'll just have to go to, uh, to Cape. Yeah, there you go, man. We'll, uh, we'll see you cats there. <laughs> Well, cool, man. I, I appreciate uh, again uh, your uh, your patience and uh, largesse with uh, with me. And uh, man, I will uh, sure as heck look forward to uh, issue three because uh, uh, it's about time for the uh, the stuff to hit the fan, as it were. You are like the king of Kingdom Come, Bill. So thank you so Bill, much, for Bill. We are us. better for your presence. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it, fellas. It is such a pleasure. And we and we won't tell Brad about you and your little side podcast here. So. I love that. I appreciate it.
<laughs> You're cheating on yeah, Brian, they me, Frank. Yeah, he told me they'd, uh, they'd demote me if they found out about this, so I appreciate this, guys. Let's keep it between us. <laughs> Once you have dude, you never go back. Okay. Good point. Good point. I uh, I don't know how I could ever go back at this point, but uh, you know what? I'll soldier through, and uh, I'll try to fight the good fight uh, on the other side of the fence uh, next uh, weekend. <laughs> but believe me, we'll be thinking about you guys, too. So, you know, good time to have by all. <laughs> Thanks again, Bill. We really appreciate you sitting in tonight. And thank you for listening to our show. Join us next week, as Adam said, for our wild card episode. Who knows where that could be? Wow. And uh, thanks a lot. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night.